Okay, we're in um, the third part of a series we're doing on John 14 through 17. And we're talking about the love of God. And we're talking about John 14 through 17 as the lens to interpret uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent 12 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount through the summer and in the fall. And so John 14 through 17, it is the lens that we apply to the Sermon on the Mount to be able to even begin to live that lifestyle, to attempt to live that lifestyle. And so uh, we're just moving through. We're just hitting some of the high points in John 14 through 17. These chapters are so rich. I would encourage everybody to take a season. And, and if you're not in, in this season, that's okay. But take a season and give yourself to studying John 14 through 17 and see what the Lord does in your heart. It will absolutely mess you up in a good way. And so uh, I just want to read a few verses from John 14, and then uh, we'll go ahead and move in. But let's look at John 14, look at verse 15. Verse 15, John 14 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Skip down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keep them, keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the, the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I want to draw our attention back to John 14, verse 15. In the New King James Version, which is the way I just read it, um, it says it this way. It, it, it gives you the impression like this. The person that loves God will keep his commandments. And it's clear that if you're not keeping his commandments, you don't love God. And, and so it's easy to read it that way because the, the New King James, it kind of phrases it out that way. If you love me, uh, keep my commandments. And it's, so the, the other side of it is if you don't love me, then you don't, you're not going to keep my commandments. But if you read the NIV and the um, New American Standard, the New International Version of the New American Standard, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what Jesus is speaking to is this. He's speaking to the reality that when love impacts the heart, when love hits the human heart, when God's love touches us, the, the uh, produce of that is that we are compelled by the very love of God to do everything God wants us to do. And so many times we can read these verses and we can get it this way that, well, I've got to prove to God that I love him by doing a whole bunch of his commandments. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is trying to communicate. What he's trying to communicate in these verses is when the love of God hits your heart, there will be a release of the power of God in you, causing you, compelling you, constraining you, to do all that God wants you to do, and it's in this way. It's not, oh, God loves me and I realize it, so now i got to work and show him how much I love him. It's not in that way. It's in this way. The love of God is hitting my heart. Something is moving on the inside of me, and all I want to do now is abandon myself to God and fully give myself to him. And so Jesus is saying it this way. If I can, if I can add a little flowery language, he says, if you come to know my love... My love will impact your heart. 
And when my love impacts your heart, you'll fall in love with me. And when you fall in love with me, you'll give yourself to everything I ask you to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's he saying? He goes, when the love of God impacts the human heart, it's irresistible. It's irresistible. It causes us to give ourselves in abandonment to God. And so that little issue right there is a massive issue for us in Christianity. Here's why. It really boils down to, for us in Christianity, uh, it, it kind of boils down to this. Are you living for God? You know, we, you know, I don't know how you measure your life or how you look into it, but you go, you know, whatever the, the lenses you apply to yourself, you know, in all your daily doings is what I'm talking about. All your thoughts, all your doings, all your interactions, it, it, you know, somewhere, sometime you look at yourself and you go, am I living for God? And I think that's a, I mean, I think it's an okay question, but I think it's, it's kind of the wrong question. I think the right question that really will help you identify it is, have you fallen in love? Have you fallen in love? Because I guarantee you, if you've fallen in love, you're, you're so susceptible to doing Christian things. You just, you just can't help it. He loves me, and I want to love him back. I mean, when you fall in love with the one who is righteousness, you love righteousness. It's, I mean, it's, you know what I'm saying? You don't have to go and figure out what righteousness looks like and then go, okay, I love all that. I don't love any of these things that I'm lusting after all day. I love all these things, and I'll make myself love it. That, that's not how it works. It's this. The love of God touches you, impacts you. You fall in love. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. We love him only because we get a revelation that he loves us. You can't figure out what love of God looks like and try to live love of God unless you've tasted love of God. It's how it is, beloved. See, now here's, a, here's our little challenge, though, because you and I totally agree with this. You guys are amen and real good tonight. But here's the thing. We, while we totally agree with it, we totally live the other side. I mean, we just totally do. You go, man, I'm going to prove to you, God, I love you today. I am going to show you how much in love with you I am. Let me come up with my good list. And when we miss our list, we miss the thing on our list, or scandalous, we do the opposite of something that shows we love God on our list. Then we have to, like, run double time to prove it, that we love him. And what are we doing? We're trying to manufacture righteousness. See, righteousness is never manufactured from the human heart. It's not. It can't be. It can't be built from humans. Righteousness is what God is and what we have to have from him for it to be in us at all. You and I can't figure out the seven things that make us look righteous, do those seven things, and now we've built righteousness. See, in Isaiah 64, he says, all of your righteous acts are filth. Wow, darn. You mean all my attempts 
to try to prove to God that I'm lovable are ugly. Well, he says they're filth. Huh. So we have this, what happens is we have this intersection within us where we want to love God. We want to live righteously. Many times because we know it's the right way we ought to be as a Christian. Yet, many times we don't know the love of God enough to compel our hearts enough to go headlong in abandonment in love. And so because we don't know love, but we know we ought to look like we know love, we end up here in the purgatory of manufacturing, manufacturing self-righteousness. That's a painful place to be. Painful place to be. I, I'm, I've got, I've got, I'm trying to get to a place because I, I got hit with a, I got hit on Friday by the Lord. I don't mean he punched me. I mean, he, he gave me some stuff and I'm, and I'm trying to get over to there and I'm trying to put it in a package that makes sense to you because I'm, my head is spinning. Okay. John, uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. just write the verse. It says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Here's the thing. Many would believe this. Many would believe that the heart, and I'll, I'm going to actually do a series on this in the days ahead, but just, just let me just pique your interest. Many would believe that the heart is speaking of the spirit of man. In fact, how many have heard teaching on that? That the heart is the spirit. Just raise your hand. Ever heard that? Handfuls. I think the heart's the soul. I'm pretty sure, pretty clear biblically, the heart is the soul. The inner man, the heart, it's the soul. And so when we talk about might being released in our inner man, when Paul's praying that for the church in Ephesus, he goes that might would be released in your inner man. That Christ would dwell in your heart. How could he pray that for people who already believe in Jesus if the heart equals the spirit? Because when you get born again, Jesus comes by the Holy Spirit and lives in your spirit. So when when Paul's praying that your heart uh, would be impacted, that Christ would live in your heart, that your inner man would be filled, that might would dwell in your inner man, the inner man and the heart couldn't be the spirit because that's an already reality that they're living. And the, the heart and the inner man must be the soul, the mind, the will, and the emotions. And here's what, here's what Jeremiah and what Jesus said, that, that, that the heart is wicked. And so we've got this inner turmoil, this tension going on in our soul. We're trying to get more of God in and the wickedness out. It's called the renewing of the mind. The transformation of the soul. It's the renewing of the mind. Get God in to where I make my decisions, to where I feel, to where I think. That's the soul area. Get God into there where my person, the seat of my personality is and get all the wickedness out of there. And that's this tension that we live in. So the other night, I had a, I had a dark moment. I had a moment where I manifested from my soul sin. Now, I know that scandalizes everybody in here. But it did. It came, out of my, it came out of my soul and out of my mouth, actually. And I went, oh, God, I'm dark. And he goes, and finish it. But lovely? <laughs> Question mark. 
here's where it took me with the Lord. I said, okay, Lord, here's the deal. I'm hurt by the wickedness that's in my heart. I'm hurt by it. But I am not going to go through the religious rigmarole of trying to manufacture righteousness and do a bunch of penance and Hail Marys or whatever to try to get you to like me again because you liked me yesterday and you'll like me tomorrow and you like me right now and I'm in sin and I know it, but you like me. So, then, even though I don't feel like you like me, how do I get it, Lord? How do I get it? Help me get it. See, because we love the dark but lovely. We love that. You know, that's from Song of Solomon, chapter one. You know, I'm dark but lovely, though I've, you know, I've got darkness and weakness and sin. You know, Jesus finds me lovely, finds me beautiful. We love that, but that doesn't even work until you're dark. In the middle of a dark moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, it preaches real good. The class moves our heart. Oh, Song of Solomon's touching me. I'm dark but lovely. Yeah. But when you're in a dark moment, the darkness of the dark moment, try it then. Because that's when you know whether or not the thing is, is like working yet. It's really true. It's a simple, I know this is simple love of God stuff, but this is really it. So I, I had it enough to where I said, okay, I'm sure you love me even though I manifested wickedness from my heart. I'm sure you love me. Now, how do I get it? And he started asking me the question. Here's what he asked me. Who is the God that loves harlots? He goes, who is the God who bends down and speaks tender words to harlots. Do you know that God? I mean, it stunned me. I was like, oh, I don't. I mean, I, I, know, you know, I, I don't know that. I don't know you. And he started, he just started unpacking some things for me and dealing with myself justifying because of my life of supposed righteousness and showing me that it's not about my uh, deeds and righteousness that enable God's love to be in my life. It's my response to his love and abandonment because I know love because he's given love therefore I know love and I respond in abandonment loving the one who is righteousness itself and that's the only way righteousness manifests in me and then he asked me can you teach a harlot to do righteousness can you just teach her to clean up change her clothes and act righteous no something's got to impact her heart so much that she is allured drawn out of giving herself to other lovers and so it is with you and I Luke 18 I just want to reference it I've got I want to I want to land this for you in Luke 8 I mean John 8 but let me just tell you the story in Luke 18 in Luke 18, what we have in verses 1 through 8, 
It's the widow who cries out night and day for justice from the unjust judge, right? Remember the story? And, she, and, and you know, the, 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 the unjust judge, because she's, she won't stop crying out, the unjust judge gives her justice. And the Lord says, how much more, if an unjust judge gives justice, how much more will I release justice? And so you have this night and day prayer ministry in Luke uh, 18, 1 through 8. And we, that's, we draw so much of our, of our uh, strength from those verses. They're powerful verses, and I've preached on them several times. But then he goes in Luke 18 and, and, and verse 9, and he starts talking about the, the two men that were in the temple. And one's a tax collector, one's a Pharisee. And the tax collector won't even stand near. He stands afar off with his head down. And he says, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. Forgive me. The Pharisee comes in close. He goes, God, I fast twice a week. I tithe. I do everything that's righteous. Thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. And Jesus said, that only one of them left justified. And it was the guy that stood afar off with awkward confession of sin. I mean, awkward. He was the one that was justified before God, not the one that drew near and and pointed to the righteous, quote-unquote, righteous acts of his life. And I thought, how often... Do I look at the quote-unquote righteous acts of my life and allow those to justify me before God and put me in right standing with God when it's not a thing to do with whether or not I'm in right standing with God? The issue about me being in right standing with God is this. The man Christ Jesus shed his blood for harlots. And that's where it lands. The problem with the Pharisee, maybe, maybe the Pharisee was even a good man. Maybe he was even sincere. But the pressure for the Pharisee to keep the righteous looking facade going, the pressure for the Pharisee to be a Pharisee, perhaps it compelled him to say, I'm not like that. I do everything that's righteous how do we find ourselves so often in the role of the Pharisee in Christendom we do why because we're supposed to be Christians you're supposed to be a Christian you can't manifest darkness from your soul you can't have wickedness in your soul so we paint it up real nice with a smile face and we distance ourselves from the reality of the inner working of our deceitful heart. And I'll tell you right now, clearly, there's not one of us in this room that's arrived. Every one of us is a work in process. Every single person in this room manifests darkness from their soul from time to time, for real. In fact, if we had the like mic open and did the wild, you know, awkward confession of sin thing, it would be, and people got real, for real. It would be so unpalatable, we would leave. We can't handle it. We're much more 
comfortable with the sin that's hidden and not confessed than we would be with a harlot who came in here and said, I've slept with 50 men last night and she's in you know, prostitution clothes and she still has the smell and the look of the night on her. And she said, could you please help? I was with 50 men last night. We'd be much more comfortable with the young man that had some sort of a private sin issue and came in and sat and put the happy face on. Why? Because we choose self-justifying over truth in the inner parts. Am I talking to anybody? And that's what Jesus was saying. And you know what I think is so amazing? Is he does the Luke 18, 1 through 8, and he puts the Luke 9 about the guy self-justifying right next to it. Why? Because the people that are going to justify themselves the most are going to be the people that pray all the time. The Luke 18, 1 to 8, nine-day prayer, we got it going on. Praise God. We're not like the rest of the body of Christ. They don't pray. Hallelujah. He goes, Pharisee. You're not justified by what you've manufactured to prove that you're in right standing with me. You're only justified by my free gift of grace, the sacrifice of my son. Do you know the God that loves harlots? I just thought about how deceptive my soul is. The heart is deceived. It's deceiving. It deceives our, we are deceived by ourselves. The darkness of the Pharisee wasn't the fact that he had probably had anger issues or whatever his junk was. The darkness in the Pharisee was his propensity to whitewash his sin. That was the darkness. The wickedness within him was his propensity to justify himself before God and man. I am righteous because I do the acts of righteousness. First John 1 John 1.8, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. First John 1 John 1.9, but he's faithful and just. We confess our sin to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we land in 1 John 1 8 far more than we should. I've got no sin. I'm a Christian. And the whole time, 1 John 1 9 is sitting there waiting on us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, there's this thing that we do. I don't know about you, I do it. I play the game of keeping score. You ever keep score? You, you know, you do the one bad thing, but then you have a good day of 10 good things. And you figure your 10 good things surely outweighed that one bad thing. How silly it is to try to keep score. For this reason, I mean, just this reason alone, I mean, of course the score doesn't work because one sin will fully alienate you from God. We, I mean, we know that up here, but, you know, we still try to work it all out. I'll prove to you I'm righteous. But what about this? What about your vantage point? 
can your vantage point really tell whether or not the deed was righteous or not righteous? Can, your vantage, can you really count well from your vantage point? You know what I mean? Can you really like figure it out like that one was righteous for sure. I mean, from our vantage point with a deceitful soul, how do we even try to figure it out? That's stupid beyond belief. Yeah, we do it all day long. Well, I might have sort of fibbed over there, but you know what? I really did give good in the offering, so I feel so good about that. It just doesn't work that way, beloved. It just does not work that way. I can't, I don't even, and here's the other thing. As if, if I had the right vantage point, I've got the bandwidth, like I've got the brain to be able to keep track of it. Come on, I can't even remember what I said two days ago. Like I could really keep track of all of my righteous and unrighteous actions. I don't have the bandwidth and I don't have the vantage point. And why would I even put myself through the emotional pain of trying to keep track of my own righteousness when whatever I manufacture of myself in righteousness is filth? Who is the God that loves harlots? I started realizing that what God is attracted to is repulsive to me. He's actually attracted to one that has darkness within, that manifests sin, and that confesses it in awkwardness. He's attracted to that. And you and I... We're far more attracted to the one that's got the happy face and the smile on the outside. We're repulsed by the one that would tell us all their stuff that we, that we don't have a palate for. And God's attracted to it. God is repulsed by the whitewashed tomb, the one that attempts to justify himself. but he's attracted to the harlot that doesn't try to hide her sin. I started realizing God's love, it's not, it's more than what I thought. It's better than what I thought. I'm going, this, thing, this is, a, it's actually better. Like if it could get better, it just, it just keeps getting better. This is kind of how it works. This is, here's the tension of you and I. We start to know God's love and his love starts drawing us to him and our heart starts responding in love for him and we start moving closer to him yet with every step closer we start coming in greater recognition of our own depravity so I'm moving to him because I'm longing for him because he's loving me so strongly that my heart is compelled it's what I was made for, to be loved by God. And every step I move, there's a yes and a no in me. The yes is, oh, I want that love. That's the only thing that'll satisfy me. The no is, you can't look at me. You can't see me. It's Adam and the fig leaf. I move closer, and I, I'm aching more for God, and I move closer, and I'm more in pain of my shame. Until the tension, it's conviction. That's what conviction is. 
Conviction is where my desire for God and the reality of my soul and its wickedness cross. Will I continue to keep the wickedness of my soul or will I depart with that, dispense with that, and continue to pursue? That's where conviction, that's conviction. When the desire for God touches the reality of depravity within me. And if I choose love and I keep moving toward God, that's called repentance. It's just really simple. But then there's sort of this place you come to where you go, okay, I want God and I want love. But he sees me and I am exposed. I am depraved and he is perfect. I want love, but I'm depraved. And you start getting the revelation of could one that's perfect like him really want one that's depraved like me? Could he want me? Could he desire me? Would he have me with the beautiful, perfect, brilliant God have one that's destitute and depraved? Would he? Is it possible that love could desire, long for, and want depravity? Could it be? Would he have me? The answer is resounding. Yes. 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 Punctuated by the cross of Christ. Guys, the most scandalous thing ever happened was God putting on dirt and becoming a man. God puts on dirt, becomes a man, becomes subject to fallen angelic ranks and the pressures of broken humanity? What, what is that? Allows himself to be tortured and killed as a thief? That's, that's scandal in the highest measure. Can you imagine the violence of the strategy of that? I mean, the strategic violence in the Godhead for God to say, I want men and women who are depraved. I want them and I will be crushed. Wrapped himself in dirt. Who is the God that desires harlots? He loves harlots. He's kind to harlots. You know what's hard for us? I've explained the self-justifying, but you know what's hard for us? Is that really, 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 bottom line, without Jesus, you know what? We're all harlots. In fact, we fit in one of two categories. We're harlots or we're Pharisees. See, the word of the harlot is God loves harlots, really does. He really loves you. See, the word of the Pharisee is no, really, you're a harlot. 
No, undoubtedly, there's, there's somebody sitting here right now with me. You're sitting here and you're listening to this and you're going, I ain't no harlot. I'm, I, I've been bought by the blood. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, I'm not at all touching the issue of being identificationally seated with Christ. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the reality of the wickedness of your soul. Period. I, I don't... I don't have a problem at all that yes we are seated with Christ in heavenly places a gift and grace by the blood of Jesus that's reality for us but in the measure that we try to justify ourselves by producing our own righteousness we're either ones who come to God and say I can't believe it it's too good to be true but I choose to believe it that you love harlots or we're ones that stand on the other side and say I'm so glad I'm not like that harlot. I've got all these righteous works I've done to prove it. Let's look at John 8. We're doing good on time. what happens to some of us is that we get so identified with who we are wicked in our heart and we paint such a happy face but we're more identified with the wickedness of our heart we can never believe that God would desire us and I tell you he loves you because God loves wicked people you know what wicked people are the only kind that live on the planet. No, it's true. God so loved the world. I'm talking about the mom who walked into that clinic this weekend and destroyed her baby. God loves her. The doctor who performed the murder. I'm talking about the men that are right now all over this nation and all over the world that are feeding the sex slave industry that are having sex with 12 and 13 year old girls. God loves those men. He loves those pimps that are, that are stealing little girls and forcing them into slavery and having the girls live in cages. He loves those men that are doing that. And he loves the little girls that are stuck in that reality. God loves the wicked. God loves the wicked. Sometimes we get so identified with the wickedness of our heart, we just cannot believe He loves us. It's that tension of drawing near. You get to that place and you say, Would He have me? You're so aware of the wickedness of your soul. You, you answer the question yourself. You go, there's no way. No way. There's no way God would love me. I know me better than anyone. And I say, no, honey, you're wrong. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows all the wickedness far more than you. Yet he died because he's in love. John 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. 
Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Some commentators believe that she was a harlot. Some just believe that she was in an adulterous affair. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. See, they weren't longing for God's righteousness or even to uphold the law of God. All they wanted to do was try to use the law so they could murder. They were trying to use the law to catch Jesus so they could kill Jesus. They were trying to catch him in the feast that they'd just been in. And now they're trying to manipulate and use the law of God to justify murder. Verse 6, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, the New King James says he raised himself up. The, The other versions say he looked up. And said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him cast, throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote it on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, being, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, Woman, where are the accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want to paint the picture of this for you. It's the morning. It's early in the morning. And it's the day after uh, the high feast. They've just gone through eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is the very early in the morning... Uh, the, the, the day right after the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus is conducting a Bible study and many people are coming to him. They're in the courts of the temple. They're in the temple courts. And many people come to listen to Jesus teach. And what happens is the, the Pharisees, they bring this woman who was caught in adultery and they throw her right down in the middle of this Bible study. Now, when you read it, and I know I did for years, but when you read it quickly, you think, uh, it says she was caught in the act of adultery, that they brought her right from the bed of adultery right into the Bible study. But that's probably not what happened. How do I know? Because what are Pharisees doing with an adulterous woman first thing in the morning? Were they up all night trying to catch a woman in adultery and somehow got her? No. She'd been arrested. She'd been arrested and held in custody in the temple, just like Jesus was held in custody in the temple and and brought before the the high priests. She'd been arrested and and held overnight. So first thing, when they had the first chance they could with Jesus, they bring her out and they interrupt his teaching and throw her right down in front of them. Why? Because they were planning to accuse Jesus. It was a plot. What's interesting is she'd probably been caught the day before or a day or two before on the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles has got many significant things about it, but one of the most significant is this, that it represents man and God tabernacling together. What it it will be in the day when the Lord returns, the Feast of Tabernacles, it'll be the marriage supper. And every year, 
in the age to come, we will go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, God tabernacling with men. This woman was committing adultery in the bed with the man practicing harlotry during the high festive holiday that was to commemorate man's marriage to God. Can you imagine the pain of it? She's spitting in God's face. She's sleeping in an adulterous bed on the holiday that's supposed to commemorate God's marriage to man. They bring her and they throw her before Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He gets down on her level. He takes all the accusations upon himself. And he looks up and he says the the shocker. Whoever's without sin, let him throw the first stone. You know what he's saying to those Pharisees? All of you guys have got sin. All of you guys have rebelled against God. Which one of you guys isn't a harlot? You're all harlots. You're just better at hiding it than she is. And, and I believe the, the, if he could have just explained it, he, could, he would have gone, if you'll come off your self-righteousness and your propensity to justify yourself, you'll find out that I love harlots. And Jesus, on her level, takes all the accusations upon himself. All the accusers leave, and then he says, where are they? that accuse you. She said, they've gone. He says, and neither do I. Beloved, that's the understanding of the God that loves harlots. God is kind to the wicked. Jesus goes, I don't, I don't condemn you. I'm kind to you. And what we have the hardest time coming to grips with is this, that in the moment we are caught like that harlot, in the moment that we are manifesting darkness from our soul, that Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, is down in the dirt with us, bearing the accusation and speaking kindness to us. It's a picture of the cross. God stoops down in the dirt and stays there until all the accusers are gone. And then he raises himself up in the resurrection and proclaims justification over her. Do you know the God that loves harlots? Do you know the one that's kind? He speaks tenderly. Tenderly. To harlots. 
Somebody said, well, brother, you're trying to allow people to get away with their sin. No, I, I'm absolutely not. What, what I'm trying to do is call you to run to God in the middle of sin. You don't have to prove righteousness. You don't have to try to work your way and show God that you're worthy to be forgiven. You just got to come to know the God that loves the wicked. He loves the wicked. And the thing that will keep us alienated from the love of God is painting that happy face trying to justify ourselves because of the righteous deeds of our life. We, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm fine, I'm righteous. And inside the, the, the wickedness of our deceptive heart is belching from us and we do not want to deal with that with him. But if we will run to him and say, you love me and I know it and I'm running to you so I can know it. I tell you, he will strip from our heart the wickedness and he will fill us with love. The reality of being filled with the fullness of God because of the revelation of love has everything to do with wickedness being ripped out and love being poured in. Everything to do with it. I was, um, I was having a real interesting time in prayer last month and I, uh, I was just messed up. And, and I said, Lord, I want all that you have for me. And I, and I was uncontrollable weeping and just messed up. I said, I want all that you have for me, God. And he said, it'll cost you the wickedness of your heart. My mind went tilted. I'm like, I'm not wicked. I'm the director of IHOP. (laughs) And he showed me, I had a, a picture of a root, a root of wickedness from my head all the way through my body. He said, it'll cost you all the wickedness. And I saw him begin to rip that root out of me and fill me with love. And in a moment, I mean, I, you know, you and I in this moment, we go, oh no, I'd get rid of my wickedness. I want love. You see, wickedness amounts, amounts to selfishness. He was saying, it'll cost you all your selfishness. You want fullness? We want to shout and dance and holler about having the power of God and fullness manifest. But most of us don't want our selfishness to go at the expense of that. It'll cost you all your wickedness to be filled with love. Just trying to think about I was in the middle of this, I thought, what in the world was God doing with Hosea and Gomer? He gets a real prophet and marries her to a real prostitute. No, really. Like, the man marries a prostitute. Why? Because God is in love with a harlot people. 
God is in love with Israel. God is in love with us. He's radically in love with us. He's in love with us. He's not in love with the the good you that you put on when you go into the religious gathering. He's in love with the nasty you that you don't want to let anyone see. He's in love with the you that you're afraid to tell anyone about. I mean, to really confess your stuff to anyone because you're afraid they won't love you anymore. He's in love with that. Why else would he marry Hosea to Gomer? Why else would Jesus, God, get in the dirt with a harlot in front of Pharisees? You know what's amazing about Jesus? It's amazing enough that he loves harlots. But he takes the harlot and he never treats her like a harlot. You know, most men, if they were to marry a woman that had a sordid past, they'd dress her up, clean her up, paint her up, put different clothes on her, and say, okay, honey, don't, don't tell anybody about your testimony. Just tell them you were, you know, you're kind of wild. But don't tell, them, don't tell them you were a hooker. Don't tell them you were a, a dancer. Jesus, he goes in to the red light district and pulls her out and never treats her like a harlot but doesn't care who knows and sure he changes her clothes and sure he cleans her up but he wants the world to know that he's the God who loves harlots he's in love with her while she's still wearing the clothes and has the smell of the night on her He betrothes her to himself and he says of the harlot, you are a virgin. See the word in Hosea 2 when he says, I've betrothed you to me in righteousness. That word betrothed is only used in a marriage of a virgin. He takes the harlot in her harlotry, pulls her up, and says, I don't care who knows, I love you, and as far as I'm concerned, you're pure as I am. Can you imagine what's burning in the heart of God? He loves the depraved, yet he knows he can only be with ones that are righteous. He loves the harlot, but he knows he can only be with ones that are pure. He's got this aching for a harlot people, yet trying to get to the place, how do I, you know, I know God doesn't have any questions where he's wondering, but I mean, if there was tension in the heart of God, I love them, but I can only be married to ones that are clean. Yes, my own arm will bring salvation. Jesus knows how to beautify the harlot he knows how to speak kindly to her he knows how to get her out of her harlotry 
And it boils down to this for us guys. It's not about us trying to build and manufacture a righteousness to get to God. Impossible. Impossible. It's about allowing the love of God to capture your heart. To fall in love. You fall in love with the one who is righteousness and you give yourself an abandonment to righteousness. It's out of love. There's no other way. There's no other possible way. See, the truth of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not about trying to figure out the list so I can look righteous. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is I've fallen in love with Jesus and I hunger and thirst for all that he is. That's what causes you to leave the darkness. That's what causes you to not choose the darkness in your soul, to allow all that to get stripped out. Do, you, do we know the God who loves harlots? Because if we did, I tell you, when dark but lovely is real for you and you're in the moment of it, you'll fall down before him. You'll let him take all the accusations. You'll let him raise you up and speak kindness and tenderness to you. And then the last thing he says is, go and sin no more. I tell you, when you've been talked to tenderly by the one who loves harlots, go and sin no more is the easiest thing to do. Let's just stand.